Welcome back to Comic Book Workshop. It's a podcast about the craft of making comics. I'm Jason Hammonds, and I am certainly no expert. I'm just trying to learn all I can from those who do it best. On this episode, I chat with writer Pornsack Show. You'll know Pornsack's work from books like Infidel and his upcoming image book, The Good Asian. Pornsack and I go deep on his writing process, his time spent at Vertigo and DC, and his thoughts on telling honest and relevant stories using genre conventions. Uh, I really don't even want to spend too much time in the intro here today because this is a really long interview and it's incredible honestly like Pornsack was so amazing i really enjoyed talking to him and he was so insightful um about craft about process uh we talked about his uh time when he was at dc just learning from you know like his direct boss was karen berger uh, a legend in comics um you know and his time at dc tv and uh, the time that he's spent you know writing tv shows and all that stuff like he's had a very multifaceted career um and so he had a lot to say about you know just storytelling in general his process the way it's evolved and and how it's sort of changed from you know genre to genre medium to medium um and i i truly i wish i could express just how much uh amazing knowledge uh that he was able to share in this interview and so you know it's a long one but it's 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 packed with uh amazing stuff so i really don't want to spend too much time here um honestly i'll just skip all sort of catch-ups and formalities uh and just uh remind you that uh, if you are enjoying the show please 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 leave a uh, a rating or review on itunes or whatever your favorite uh podcast app is it's amazingly helpful um it it, you know will help other people discover the show uh who you know are maybe making their own comics and 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 wanting to learn more and and whatever even people who are curious about it you know there's there's all sorts of people out there who would who would uh love to listen to this kind of stuff i certainly know that i've always been looking for this kind of thing which is why i do it um, and I, again, I really appreciate the messages that I've been getting. I mean, it's it's amazing to, um, particularly on Instagram, but also on Twitter, uh, people who are discovering the show recently and reaching out to say how much they're enjoying it, or people who had listened in the past and then you know discovered that we were back from our hiatus, and and uh, you know just all of you who have been reaching out to uh, to express your you know whatever positive feelings. Uh, it's been very nice and I cannot tell you how much, um, that makes me feel good and warm inside and, uh, happy to be doing this. Um, uh, but truly, you know, if, if you are enjoying the show, if you've been enjoying, you know, the return and, and the, uh, interviews that we've had, I would love it if you would leave a rating or a review. Uh, it'll help people know that we're back and it'll also, uh, help people discover the show for the first time. And boy, howdy, are there some amazing guests coming up. Um, and some of those interviews are already done and I can tell you right now that you are not going to want to miss them. Um, truly incredible stuff i i uh am always in awe at the kind of knowledge that people will drop uh in these interviews 
Um, and I do want to shout out uh, one review that we got recently. Uh, this is uh, a five-star review from uh, Cayetano V. Uh, it's titled Glorious Perfection. Um, and they say, I have just found this podcast and listened to every single episode while penciling my first issue. Hey, congrats. That's, that's amazing. Congrats on your first issue. And, uh, I hope it's, I hope it's going well for you. Um, he says this, or they say this is such a great res- resource for people starting out in comics and also people just interested in nerding out over great creators. My great hope is that these folks continue to put out more shows to keep me company while I draw my book and eventually thank them in person. I hope that too. Um, there are absolutely no plans to uh, slow down at all. In fact, this this train is getting rolling uh, faster than ever. Um, like I said, I've got two interviews already recorded uh, as of this recording, as well as two more after that that are scheduled, um, uh, including you know great guests like Rodney Barnes, Matt Fraction, and others. Uh, they are amazing episodes, and I, I can't wait for you guys to. Uh, get those into your ear holes but thank you again so much uh, Kayatano v for that review and anyone else who would like to leave a review please do so and we will shout you out on the show uh, before we get into the interview i wanted to let you guys know about my friends at garm that is the graphic artist resource merchant they make amazing products for uh, digital artists like myself and like i'm sure many of you listening to the show uh, they've got awesome kits uh, that that have you know like different halftone effects and shading effects uh, stippling whatever um, my personal favorite kit is the rawhide kit it kind of allows you to accomplish that sort of magazine print illustration look with your work um you know, it just just adds that lovely uh, and amazing texture that, you know, you would spend so much time and, and probably overclock your processor on if you're, you know, really trying in Photoshop or Procreate or whatever. It, it, it takes out all of that extra nitty gritty sort of like, you know, you're not really creating the image anymore. You're just kind of trying to like enhance it. You're trying to put some foam on top of the coffee or whatever. Um, and, and Garm takes care of that for you. Um, if you head on over to garmcompany.com slash TMBC, you can get 20% off anything that you order there. Um, right now they have their Photoshop effect kit bundle. Um, if you're a Photoshop user, you can get all of their resources for Photoshop, um, which is on sale right now. So with the sale and our discount, you're going to get that for under 30 bucks. That's a, it's a pretty incredible deal. Um, to be honest. Uh, so head on over again, garmcompany.com slash TMBC and check out the stuff that they have for you. Um, I want to remind everyone that you can follow the show at TMBC Workshop on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me at Jason Halftones on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Pornsack you can find at uh, real underscore Pornsack on Twitter and real underscore PSAC on Instagram. Uh, that is all the preamble that I am going to give you. Let's just get on into that friggin' interview. Uh, without further ado, here is Pornsack Pisha Show. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Now, uh, we are talking pretty soon after uh, your your new book was announced, but for, yes. for those who haven't heard or seen the announcement, what's what's the deal? What's What's got you returning to the, the landscape of comics after a couple of years? Yeah, after a couple of years. Uh, well, the new book is called The Good Asian. It's uh, what we're calling Chinatown Noir, a 1936 detective story uh, following... Following a, following a detective uh, tracking a killer in 1936 Chinatown, 1936 San Francisco Chinatown. Mm. And, uh, and you know, it does sort of your, in typical noir fashion, we, there 
there it's, it's a search for a missing girl that leads into murders, that leads into conspiracy. But what it's really about is that between 1882 to 1943, there was a ban on all Chinese immigrants coming into America, and it was America's first immigration ban. And so it's about that generation of, of Chinese and Americans where the only thing that they knew by 1936, the only thing they knew um, was growing up beneath this immigration ban. It's kind of like you know, how their sense of identity and how their sense of self uh, formed around that or formed because of that and despite mm. of that. And and it's all done kind of like infidel. It's uh, it, it we sort of use these themes, but also are trying to tell sort of a genre story at the same time. And in this particular one, it's a noir mystery. And so we're digging really deep into my love of, you know, pulp novels <laughs> of, you know, Continental Op and Sam Spade sure. and Philip Marlowe, and Lou Archer and Easy Rollins and all that kind of great stuff. Yeah. So it gives me a chance to sort of play on you know across across the, the the spectrums although i will say that when i was doing a horror comic you know there are obviously very great horror comics out there and sure. there's a large um legacy of great horror comics but when we were doing infidel it felt like there were like two or three like you know re- horror comics that were like really great and really worked whereas yeah. like with crime comics there's so many like i think every incredible writer in comics like does a crime comic and so yeah. the bar is just set so ludicrously high and so we're we're, we're, we're working our asses off to kind of <laughs> Truly, to, to, to meet it <laughs> it's it's a well-populated segment but oh all, at the same time it, it does sometimes feel like it's almost not populated enough for how popular the genre itself is you know what it's funny because again i've been living under this whole um this thing of like oh my god the great like crime comics writers and but sure. when the announcement came out a lot of people were just like oh my god it's so great to have like a period noir and a period crime and then i was like yeah. oh yeah i guess that's true there i guess you know what i think of all the great the, the period stuff is is much less and specifically you forget that at 1936 chinatown that, that i'm yeah. getting into um but just the 1930 that 1930s totally. not, there actually isn't as much as i would have thought there was which is a little bit more of a relief on my part I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah well and even i mean like even in film and tv like you know i mean when was the last like major period piece set in that time like maybe what public enemies or like boardwalk That's empire true. you know yeah like, yeah 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 no you're right i think yeah no, i think boardwalk empire was after public enemies right because probably yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't. But I know, I think you're, I think you're right. Well, no, you know what? Perry Mason was oh, the sure, sure, that, sure. that just came out, which I yeah. feel like it's gotten like differing levels of 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 a response because I feel like people just kind of, I feel like when it was coming out, like people were talking about it, and then all of a yeah. sudden, like people just like forgot it existed, which was kind of weird. Totally. <laughs> It's very odd, especially for like, you know, Matthew Reese is the lead or whatever. Yeah. But like, I haven't watched an episode and it feels like something I probably should have watched by now because of just like the pulpy roots and like all that. Yeah. It feels like something I would have been interested in. It, it's a weird thing. I've, I've, I, so I live in this life now with since the pandemic, I pandemic right. with my mom. I brought her to sort of live with me and um, we watch all our TV together now. Oh, and man. so all of our and, and the, the good news is is that she actually has i would never tell her this but she actually has pretty decent taste um i i am <laughs> yeah, my never I, knowing that yeah yeah no can't ever know that but although <laughs> that that said though there was a thing for me is like i've got to find like shows from my mother otherwise we are going to be watching ellen's game of games every evening sure, yeah so like i and and it turns out like she loves a lot of the darks she loves ozark she loves succession she okay. loves the american so like we found a lot of stuff but the things but any shows that she any shows that she didn't get into and a lot of the, like the heavy genre shows like mm. she's not into at all and so as a result i have to like sneak away and 
watch those on my own. Thank God it's basketball season. And so I have like two hours <laughs> in a day where she's watching the Lakers or the Clippers and sure. I can like watch whatever I want to watch. There but, you go. Um, but, but yeah, but as a result, I'm only halfway through uh, Perry Mason. And the th- I think the interesting thing about, and maybe this is why it didn't catch on more is that as well done as it is, there's still this thing of like, why are we watching Perry Mason be a noir detective? Like, you know, like sure, it, there's, yep. I think it might be a little bit of that disc. Like, I don't know if in the original Perry Mason, he started off as a detective and we just meet him when he's a lawyer, but, mm. um, and someone decided to tell young Perry Mason stories. But I, I wonder if that has that like primal disconnect is, is maybe the reason why people aren't remembering it more. I don't know. Yeah, no, that, I think that makes total sense. It's, it's very interesting to see, like, and I think this also is something just to, to tie it into good Asian a little bit. I've, I've got a few sort of questions that are like, that are all kind of like scattershot, but, but okay. around the same type of topic, um, that just sprung out of that. But it does to me feel as though the way to make existing, like, you know, things that have been out there before, whether it be setting or, you know, tone or genre, whatever, like the way to make it interesting is, is to surround it in things that haven't been done in that genre before. Right. And, and, and it gets very frustrating to see, you know, whether it's TV shows or movies or whatever that kind of are just like, Oh yeah, I'm just doing the thing. I'm just doing, you know, what that thing did 10 years ago again. Uh, and it's, it's, I think that's what's, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I was just going to say, like, I, and I think that's one of the traps you fall into when everything is a remake or a reboot yeah. or, you know, it, whether or not your thing is a remake or a reboot, it just it 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 sets you off on the wrong foot where yeah. that's everyone's first instinct. So as a result, the stories that we're telling are, you know, five years out of step, 10 years out of steps, 20 years out of step. Mm-hmm. And the game becomes, well, how can I take this 50-year-old thing and make it relevant now as opposed to yep. just going for something that's actually relevant now? It's it's one of the things, honestly, that I love about comics and image and creator-owned comics is that, yeah. you know, we get to do original stuff that actually kind of looks at like, all right, what is the pulse? And like, let's make something that is that 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 is right for this moment. And, and I think for both Good Asian and Infidel, like the things I... I'm proud to work in comics because I don't think either of those, not that they don't work in movies or, or TV and film because like there's certainly been interest on, on, on all those camps, but mm-hmm. those industries aren't set up to process those ideas as quickly as, as comics can. And so Definitely. the thing I love about comics is that you are talking directly to your reader and your reader is going to let you know, oh yeah, no, we're interested in, in this. And, and that's yeah. honestly one of the things I found for Infidel. And even, you know, again, like this is like less than a week after I've made the announcement, but like, <laughs> but like for, for the good Asian too, like I was really blown away by the response online to, to it and how many people were, you know, were excited and interested because, you know, one, because in my mind, like, oh my God, there's so many crime comics out there, but to it seems like people I, I and i have to assume it is because you know doing it from the chinatown perspective doing it mm-hmm. from the you know a chinese american de- lead um sure. and, and and just using sort of the kind of the po- political lens of today to examine something in the past it, it, it was something that is just more current and yeah. than than anything you know and so like and i because i you know i now I'm at this place where I, I have like reps and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times sure. these ideas, they're like, wait, what? They, they're just confused. And and their confusion, I'm very confident, doesn't stem from the fact that they don't get it. Their confusion mm-hmm. stems from the fact that they don't know if the audience will get it. And yeah. 
And, and that to me is the crucial sort of link where I think in comics and especially with image, you can just check with the audience directly and they can, and, and they can tell you. And, and that's why, you know, that's why I think comics and, and I felt this ever since I back in my vertigo days where mm-hmm. comics is just kind of like at the forefront of culture and just, yeah. you know, examining these ideas before film and sort of TV, TV do, if anything, they're, they, they're kind of the, the the first men into the breach and sort of see like, okay, this works, this doesn't work, where the other industries kind of look and sort of course correct that from their example. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in terms of visual mediums, it is the medium that is able to respond the quickest to yeah. what it sees in the world, right? Like, and, and, and with the fewest voices, generally yeah. speaking, the fewest voices getting in the way of whatever that is, right? Like, Absolutely. particularly at Image, but even, even at, you know, the largest comic book publishers out there, like, you have what an editor and a publisher, yeah. you know, and like maybe depending on the story, some, a couple of higher ups might get involved. Right. Whereas, you know, obviously, as, as you and I both know, in TV and in film, it's like, you know, you've got your executives and then you've got, you know, this department, that department, you've got this producer, you've got this production company that's co-financing, you know, like, yeah, which like all of that stuff can be very great. You know, it can be the spirit of collaboration can be very right. alive and it can be something that's a very communal experience. Uh, but it's inherently never going to be as fast or as emotional or as raw yes uh and i think that that that's something that that is very interesting i I, that that i think people are realizing more and more about the potential of even just the potential of genre storytelling uh is that you can use these like very visceral types of stories as you've done with infidel with horror and and with crime and the good asian where like you can use this very like intense sort of genre that that can tap into someone's emotions while also using that as a lens through which to look at a more, you know, significant cultural issue, you know, like xenophobia and and you know, things like that. Like you know, I think it's obviously something that like something like Get Out did yeah. very very effectively. Um, and I think that both Infidel and Good Asian sort of play in that type of zone where you're talking about a cultural problem through visceral genre storytelling. Yeah, exactly. And the thing I kind of love about genre, too, is that, you know, with genre, there's a very, uh, to use your words, visceral sort mm-hmm. of contract with the audience where it's just like you're going to be like our the primary goal is to entertain like you could if you do a drama about this sort of stuff then the audience is like well how much of this is sermonizing how much of this is like education and all that sort of stuff but like you know and i found this for infidel like you know infidel was a horror book which means our first beyond talking about xenophobia we have to scare you and so and and that is kind of the 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 contract that you get in with the reader it's just like entertainment will come first like because it's a genre thing if it doesn't entertain you in the way the genre entertains you we have failed and we know this going in like that where this is agreement we're kind of making up front so and 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 i do feel like that way with with the good asian and crime as well which is like this is a crime story it's gonna have the 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 spills and the thrills and the and the grittiness and the kind of like the 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 warped psychology or the warped and non-warped psychology you you come to love out of a good crime out a good crime story um you know there will be other stuff we were talking as well but if Mm -hmm. we don't succeed on the basic if we can't entertain you in the basic way a crime story entertains we we have failed and so hopefully it tells an audience it's like oh cool like I'm not going to get just get preached to or sermonized for totally. for the entire time I'm I'm, I'm watching I'm reading or in, you know um, watching the story. Well, and I, and I think that's also like even just on a like bare like you know if it, like on an entertainment value level, right? Like seeing a story through the eyes of of someone who you haven't seen a lot of stories through the eyes of. Mm-hmm 
is valuable and even yes. just at the basest entertainment level because it goes it, it makes you realize like this is a different thing that i've seen before which means that there is more potential for surprise more potential for edification <laughs> like yeah you know and so like even on the basis level it's it's a valuable thing because you're not just getting inundated with the same you know cardboard cutout characters yeah. in, in different settings you know it, it's funny like because you know coming from vertigo I've worked on sort of a lot of political series and political books and, and all that. And, and, and I spent a sort of a large amount of time thinking just like, what's the most effective way of like tell, talking about that, getting that information out there or engaging in those conversations through story and all that kind of stuff. And ironically, and, and, and when you start thinking along those paths, you sort of think of like, well, what are the stories that sort of like really make a difference? And like, you know, that, that that scene that really impact people's lives and really sort of change people's lives, and um, again, that's that's very highfalutin uh, uh, oh, totally. ambitions, uh, which it was not necessarily what I'm hoping for for my book. But like, but you start to think down those paths. You, you have start to, to be ambitious. Game. Yeah, and so um, and but uh, and and what the thing I the 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 thing that I I kind of always go back to is like one of the most the the story or the tv show i think that i can argue probably had like the biggest impact that i saw had the biggest impact on someone's lives of all things uh uh-huh. you know for me it was glee and the, that tv show and primarily it was because you know that show came up it made glee show glee clubs popular that um oprah had an episode about glee Cl- or about the show they brought in a real life glee club and then at the end of that episode they handed them a huge ass check that was gonna like like support the club for the next like 10 years kind of thing. And then uh-huh. that was like a case of here's a show came and through the ripple effects that it happens, like, you know, I don't know how 50 to a hundred kids lives would actually change. And like this thing that they love would actually get sponsored and it was sort of translated into money kind of thing. And so I thought that was so interesting because I couldn't think of like any other thing that had like that much of a direct live effect on people's lives as glee existing and all of a sudden a bunch of kids who are interested in singing getting a huge ass check so they can keep doing what what they love and 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 one of the things that had occurred to me is that just like sort of like what you what you say just by centering the narrative on certain people like sometimes that's all you need to do like Hmm. that is the first step and then kind of the world works in to sort of hit all the other dominoes actually you know get money in people's hands or 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 or, you know change sort of things in certain ways so i i you know I find that fast. Uh, so I find stuff like that fascinating, you know, as, as much as like, you know, the West Wing was an amazingly influential show that, you know, seems to have gotten sort of a lot of people into politics, which who have in turn, like gone on to sort of shape the world. But yeah. in terms of like, you know, I can't think of another show that actually resulted in like money reaching teenagers hands when, when they needed it, which I, which I kind of find very powerful and amazing. That's yeah, that's honestly, that's incredible. I didn't even I, I, I didn't realize the whole story behind Glee, to be honest. That's yeah, awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and again, this uh, it, it, it was less of like they were it, it was less about, uh, you know, Glee being uh, inspired by this like Glee Club or anything like that, but just sure. more just like it brought attention to Glee Clubs all over America. Yeah. And people thought they were cool. And because people thought they were cool, Oprah gave them a bunch of money. And, totally. uh, you know, and that's and well, to me, that was that was that was very educational for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure like you think about, you know, how many people went into like, uh, you know, aeronautical engineering or whatever, you know, because of uh, Star Trek, you know, right. Or like that kind of thing where, where, yeah, it's, it's, and we take it so lightly. And I think, I think like (laughs) people, creative types have the problem of both taking their job way too seriously and also taking their job too lightly. Yeah. Uh, 
and but it, I think that's really interesting that like it's I mean it it gets into like some of the Grant Morrison thoughts of yeah. it all of like Superman is real because Superman impacts change in the world right, and right. that change is tangible and wouldn't have happened without Superman like yeah and that makes him real and I think that that's a very similar concept where it's like if the stories that are out there are inspiring people to do something differently than they otherwise would have then they do have real and tangible impact yeah exactly um, exactly and that's something I've always sort of thought about since my sort of days at days of Vertigo working as mm-hmm. on as much political stuff as I have is just like is there a way to entertain but also you know i don't know do something you know yeah. and again like that's not to say that with my work for infidel the good agent those are sort of the ambitions of a lot of again like for all this sort of stuff the main ambition is to sort of entertain within the genre, genres that they have but the but the other thing for me more than anything else is i just hope you know books like infidel and books like the good agent just like start conversations when maybe before there weren't any yeah, which is like I, I think that's like the uh, uh, the perfect type of ambition to have for a story because I think that the people who are starting a story going this is going to be the greatest thing in the world and it's going to change everything like probably are never going to hit that mark and the people right, right. who write a story not with any ambitions of that you know might write some stuff that are just gonna you know fade away. Um, there's a balance right where the ego and right. and you know the self doubt can sort of meet in the middle. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I mean, because honestly, like. One of the reasons why I am sort of working so hard to sort of promote this book is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of for the book is the fact that I've never seen a monthly serialized or, you know, a serialized comic, mm-hmm. uh, mainstream serialized comic that dives as deeply into Asian American sort of history as sort of we yeah. do, as we do. So I'm really proud of that. I'm really cool that like image has let a book like that exist. But there's also a part of me that's super scared that if the book flops, then that just becomes the example of like, oh, there's no audience for this. So sure. everyone else after this, like, it just gets that much harder to get a project like this greenlit, yeah. you know? So like, so, so there is a lot of, a lot of risk. Yeah, yeah. A lot of risk, but, but also, you know, when, when, when you're talking about like, you know, the ambition was just to, to, to talk about this sort of stuff. And then afterwards mm-hmm. you do feel like it's like, Oh shoot. Like, is there, is there sort of a responsibility or, or not even a sort of responsibility, but then it becomes like, Oh, you know, my ambitions, like, I don't know, like, I'm going through this conversation in my head of like, do, you know, can I get away with just like, not being ambitious on this in some level, just Mm -hmm. because, you know, the failure might impact others along down the line. And that's a very grandiose way of sorts of of thinking of of, of thinking that uh, every writer thinks they're God. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Every writer is also a neurotic mess like I am as well. So, so, so that, so that's the other thing that, that, you know, it'd be one thing if, if, if the book failed just sort of affected me, but the idea that like someone might be like, Oh no, don't you remember that book? Like they tried to do that and like they Mm. didn't go anywhere. So like maybe you have to change your, your thing. Like, I don't know. That to me is sort of the nightmare scenario. Which is one of the reasons why, like, even as much as I do Infidel, uh, did so much promotion for Infidel, like, I'm going, I'm double downing on, on it this time around because I, yeah. I don't even want to entertain a possibility, the possibility that that might be a thing. Well, and I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit creatively because I think that's very interesting. I, I just speaking of, from personal experience, I think that the times that I get the most, um, caught up in in like the you know sort of inertia or like the that i get i prevent myself from advancing in story in like Mm -hmm. you know just in any kind anything creatively is when i get too caught up in the ambition of it right because Mm. and i mean people talk about there's like that ira glass quote about like your your um 
uh, abilities needing to catch up with your taste. And I'm there's certainly yeah. like a level of that. But like that thing of like, I want this to be, you know, top shelf. Like I, I have such high hopes for what I can do with this. But then those hopes and ambitions will uh, make you second guess yourself at every turn. And anytime that you make a story decision, you're like, is that is that going to effectively portray this? Or like, is that going to kind of distract from the message? Like, how do you get through that? Because you're kind of talking about that, talking about, you know, the idea that this book can could potentially carry so much weight on its shoulders. Uh, and, and for me, the only way I've ever found to like, get through that is just to be less ambitious like just to try and be like you know what i'm just gonna <laughs> right, be pulpy right. and like do something stupid and like you know i don't know do a gag or whatever like but but what what is your method of getting through that sort of doubt that comes with thinking about the weight of whatever you want to do there, there's a couple different levels uh to, of that for, for me mm. where um there i think when you write enough you get used to the disappointment you feel when you finish um <laughs> sure. it will never it it, it is never as good as the version of it that was in my head. And mm-hmm. the version of it in my head before I write it in a way was like that version that like, that, you know, like that, like cure world hunger and like, well, you know, <laughs> and, and solve world peace and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. like, and so every written version is a failure in comparison to that sort of version. So there's a little bit of sure. like, okay, I've just gotten used to being disappointed with by, by my own abilities <laughs> and I just have to move on. Um, yeah. And, 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 and I also think too, like, for me, thank God, um, for me, the way I work, and this is just based on my schedule and stuff, is sure. I have to work really far in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so as a result, by well, the time I'm doing the first couple scripts, I'm not, I'm not in promotion mode. I mm-hmm. just have to. Like if I, if I had actually thought for a second while I was writing it that like, oh my God, like if this coming out and if it does badly, will that mean – there won't be an audience for this. Like I never thought of that while I was writing it and thank God, because I don't think I would have written like a word. It's only now where I'm promoting it, where I'm looking at all the potential things. I'm just like, Oh my God, I never really considered that while I was writing. Like I I really need to get off my ass and like, you know, (laughs) but like, like promote, promote it kind of thing. Because, and I think part of that is just like, you're just trying to be honest to Mm -hmm. the material. You're just trying to be honest to the material. And like, you Mm -hmm. know, it's a saying like the first rule of story is story rules. And so like, you're just like, trying to tell the most honest version of the story that 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 you can that does everything that a good sort of like crime sort of thriller noir thriller does Mm -hmm. so 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 yeah so i am just so so you're not thinking about that as much what did come for this particular book Uh is that there's a there's a line that the writer jay caspian kang wrote where he says like every stand you take for authenticity triggers its own question about what constitutes authenticity and Mm. so for me there is this there is this thing about if i am going to write something about an asian american perspective and Uh if i'm going to tap into history of and tap into asian american history Am I the right person to do that? Do mm-hmm. I do I know enough about the culture? Do I know about? Am I engaged enough in the history? And those are the questions. Because one of the things that kind of drew me, I mean, the, the the book has a bunch of like different origin stories that kind of all co- coalesce. But one of them was sure. when I was an editor over at Vertigo, um, mm-hmm. I uh, I wanted to do a graphic novel with Asian American themes. I had no idea what that meant. I I but I knew that I worked at a comic book store. You know, it was Millionaire Picnic, 
over in Cambridge, we had a lot of Asian customers when, and mm-hmm. this was like 20, 30 years ago. So I'm sure there's more now. We had a lot sure. of Asian customers coming in there. I didn't see any material that sort of, that, that was like geared towards, geared towards them. And I thought like, you know what, if we could find something that was geared towards them, I bet there'd be an enormous sort of like passionate audience for, uh-huh. for this. So I thought, so I thought like, let's like, let's, like I, I love the idea of like let's find a you know a graphic novel with Asian American themes. And I was a really young editor then, and sure. so I did not have sort of the talent, the editorial talent uh, that so many great editors do. It's like here I have an idea. Let me find the right person. Let me encourage the right the right people to sort of like bring that into reality. Um, I generally find that there are two types of editors or two types of editors that I've kind of, that I've sort of admired where there are some editors who can do that very thing of like, I have an idea here, write a creative team. And it's the best thing that they've ever done based on an idea that the editor had. And there's another type of editor, which I found myself more drawn to where I, or I was more capable of doing this mm-hmm. where it was, I don't have any ideas for you, but give me your most passionate ideas and I can help you. I can help you refine it and find a way to frame it so it's a little bit more marketable and gets a little bit more of an audience while still being the idea that you have. And mm-hmm. and and that like a lot of the editors that, you know, I like Will Dennis is a great example of that. He that's what he does. He doesn't like go to you with an idea and say, I want a book about this. He says, What are your ideas? And he like make and he helps you make the best version of that book of your ideas. And I kind of the, my talents as an editor uh, went a little bit more along those direction. And so uh-huh. because I wasn't, I never was, I wasn't doing it quite long enough to learn the, how to do the whole, here's my idea and give it to another creative team. I didn't have the ability to go to Asian American sort of writers and be like, you know, give me that, this book that I'm looking, this book that I'm looking for. But part of that, of, of trying to make that book, it put me in this question of like, I don't really know what Asian American themes are. You know, what does that sure. mean? And so, and, and it led to this like years long, just like musing about it, talking to sort of people and um, the po- podcaster, Keith Chow, who does Nerds of Color, like I was sitting down mm-hmm. with a conversation for him and we were having a conversation about it. And he was sort of saying the problem or the, not the problem, but the challenge with it is, is that, you know, if you look at like la- Latinos and Latino culture and Latino literature, like, mm-hmm. well, that's actually something that spans a lot of different countries and a lot of different cultural backgrounds, but they're, but they have, at least at the very least, they have the same language. Sure. Um, you know, when you look at sort of Asian Americans, it's just as diverse, but they're not even sort of connected by language. Yeah, so then, yeah. so, so like what does, so if you're saying something like Asian American things, like what does that even mean? And so, and like, you know, by spe- is speaking as sort of a Thai American or a Chinese American or Japanese American, like how much of that stuff sort of really overlaps. And mm-hmm. so there's a little bit for me when writing a book about sort of like, you know, a book that kind of wants to talk about Asian American history, there is a bit of, well, you know, am I the right person to talk about it? Am I educated enough? Am I educated enough in the, in the issues? Am I engaged enough in the culture? Those are more of the, 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 the pressure that I feel writing the book, because, and I think a lot of it kind of comes down to the fact that there is no, not really any Asian American canon. You know, mm-hmm. it, it we're I think Asian American sort of writers and artists are we're still in the process of building the plane as we're flying it. So I yeah. think we're all kind of making making those those questions. And I think at the end of the day, I think what any sort of writer and artist will tell you is, or storyteller will tell you, is that like you've just got to do work that's sort of 
that that's sort of honest. And if you're just honest uh-huh. with it, it um you know it will it will it will come through. But you know when you're on the ground doing it, that honesty can kind of be you, you know that honesty. Sometimes I find. Uh, at least for, I should say for this book, for a book that takes place sure. at an era before I was born, you know, talking to about people that I can only access through research, you know, yeah. it's a constant grasp of sort of what is what is authentic and what is real. I mean, the other challenge about doing this book, and it's one of the reasons why it, it took so much research, is there's no book or movie you can go to that's about, oh, this is what it was like to be in Chinatown in 1936. Uh, sure. you know, and, and with, with immigration issues, the way that we are currently looking at immigration issues right now, yeah. that doesn't exist. And so what I had to do was I had to, um, I had to sort of, you know, it's like a little bit of a Tetris of, I, uh, I had to cross-reference different books. So, you know, mm-hmm. I had books about immigration at the time. I had books about 1930s culture. I had books about, oh, here's a little something about what, like, Chinatown nightlife was like in the 1930s. And so it was taking a lot of those stories and overlapping them and sort of saying like, oh, I think this is the through line. Oh, this is this resonates with what I know from, you know, my story or from from the stories I've heard or from other people I know and, and all that. But for me, that was sort of the, the, the biggest sort of, you know, nerve wracking thing is just like trying to make something honest and trying to make some, something true. Because I think the other trap you can fall into when you're blending genre with sort of weighty issues and that there was definitely mm-hmm. something that stressed me out and was something we were really careful for about infidel was that it can turn into exploitation very easily if you don't handle it carefully and yeah. so that was you know so when i was going through this book it was like all right well you know what's the honest version of this it, for me and one of the things that i think about a lot for all you know for books in general for fiction in general but especially this book is is that uh you know i'm a big believer that we go to we go to fiction for a lot of different reasons, but one mm-hmm. of the reasons why we can go to fiction is we're looking for truth where facts don't exist, right? So, like mm-hmm. for Superman, Clark Kent doesn't exist, Kal El doesn't exist, Krypton doesn't exist. But when you open up a Superman comic, there's a certain like agreement we all make that these are all the facts that we're going to agree exist. And so when we say, "Wow, that Superman story feels real," it's because that on these facts that we've agreed upon that exist when we open up a Superman comic, there's something that feels true in there. And uh-huh. I, I, and I think that's a case for sort of historical fiction to definitely a case for historical fiction in general, where, you know, I, with this story, I'm trying really hard to like make it sit within the facts. And again, it's got to go all the places that fiction can go. But I, in the hopes is because there's nothing out there, there's no factual account of what it was like from this per- specific perspective uh-huh. And if anything, all the factual accounts ignore this perspective or or exotify yeah. this this perspective. It's like, yeah. all right, these are the facts that exist. Let me try to tell a story using these facts in the hopes that maybe there's something true that comes out on the other end. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really, really interesting way to look at it. And I think that there's like so much value to be unpacked from uh, <laughs> it, from you all know what's that. Inter- what's interesting about it is comics actually really train you well for thinking that way because mm-hmm. um so much of like how even like I've not written many superhero comics at all, but I've read sure. a ton of them. And yeah. and the thing about reading a ton of superhero comics is it 
forces you to think about like, oh, what are the stories you can tell within continuity within the and because like continuity yeah, are sure. the facts that exist. So you've got to tell yeah. like, okay, what can I stories can I tell within these facts that exist that don't change those facts to change those other stories, but still and so in a weird way, like looking at like in continuity comic book storytelling is can be, I, I used it almost as a way of handling uh, of of doing historical fiction like this. So it's like sure. it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's it's very it, it, that that's so funny. It's 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 another like it's a more entrenched um way of looking at like that uh that Vince Gilligan quote that he would always talk about in the Breaking Bad Red Room of like playing in the sandbox and sort of, you know, once they got going on that show that they would only sort of pull from things that had been previously established in the show rather yeah. than creating new stuff. Um and that's yeah, yeah totally. it totally applies with superhero storytelling where it's like this this established universe that's ongoing that you always have to like try and mine from because mining from that and 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 rooting those stories and that makes them feel more powerful which is the same then in in things like infidel and the good asian where it's it's rooting it in this world that we understand and these experiences that 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 maybe haven't had as much light shed on them uh so that then they can feel more true more honest more valid and more edifying in general because of that honesty yeah yeah no 100 percent totally um and and so i i have a lot more questions about writing and, and things that i want to uh, yeah. uh sort of come back to but but i i do want to talk about we've alluded a few times now to uh your years at vertigo and 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 being an editor mm-hmm. and all that stuff and i kind of want to ask you a few questions about that because i think especially yeah. since all of that stuff came before you know your your first comics pub you know published work in comics like uh, uh as a writer i think that it's interesting to kind of see how that editing experience shaped you as a writer um sure absolutely i mean first like i I guess one of the big questions is like you worked directly with karen berger at vertigo yeah what what were some of the biggest lessons that you picked up from karen what were the things that you were sort of able to learn from her i mean god there's so much time there's (laughs) i learned so much from i mean i I can't like divorce who i am as a writer and who i'm as a person without like thinking of vertigo so it's it's hard Mm -hmm. to isolate like certain sort of lessons the thing that stands out to me the most about karen is that she she was always right whenever there was an issue with the script Mm -hmm. the thing i found fascinating is her story instincts were so good that she would could always if she had a problem with something in the script there was always a problem there. She, there was always a problem that needed to be fixed. Now she didn't always, because she wasn't a writer, she didn't always necessarily know the best way to fix the problem. So she mm-hmm. might say like, Oh, this needs to change. And that might not have been the case, but she was, <clears throat> but if she felt there was a problem with a certain aspect of the script, there wasn't, there was always in fact a problem. If you dug deeper, you could always feel like, Oh, it's because you, know, you hadn't explored this or this doesn't make sense with that. And so sure. that was the, the biggest thing that I got from Karen was just the fact that, you know, and in a certain sense, you know, and I don't know how much this applies to writing as much as sort of good editing, but mm-hmm. and it, being an editor, it's okay to have half the answer as an editor. You sure. know, that that's what I sort of like having a good ear and having a good eye so that you can detect the problems even if you don't know how to fix them. Like yeah. that's enough for, for, I mean, obviously it helps if you have it answers at the top of your head but hopefully you're working with a creative team a writers and an artist who knows how to fix those problems all you need to know all you need to be able to say is there's something wrong here and 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 honestly it there's a power in saying i don't know i don't know what it is but i think there is can we look at it some more so i think that was you know certainly in terms of editing that that had a big sort of influence on me in terms of uh 
in terms of lessons I learned from her, and I would learn uh-huh. this a couple more times in, in my career, or see this example a couple more times in my career, was, I mean, if you know comics, you obviously know what Karen's done for comics, you know, and, and like so much of the comics that, God, I mean, like probably all the comics that I think I enjoy now are in some way <laughs> a direct, you know, they're direct descendants from Vertigo and from yeah, well, what... now we're like in this generation where every like writer who's come up and, and sort of had success in comics is inspired by the writers that Karen Berger discovered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and not just comics, right? Like TV yeah. and movie, like, totally. you know, like, I don't know if this like literate genre plays could have happened in culture if Vertigo hadn't existed, you, you, yeah. you know, like that's what she brought. And so, but the thing that really got me, it was that she, she never had an ego about anything. And and, and that's like sort of, I'm trying to think of a more accurate way of saying, it, cause that sounds like almost a pedestrian sort of way of saying it, sure. but it could be very easy to, get a writer to do something you want, get an editor to do something you want, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and as an assistant sort of coming, coming up like you, and you have no power, you, all you do is think of like, all right, what are the ways I can get people who have more power than me to like agree with me or do things that I need to sort of get done. And mm-hmm. there's a, when you're working with people who are that accomplished, it is very easy to, or, or not, it's very easy to fall into the trap or very easy to, to go to the move of, uh, using their ego to sort of get them to agree with you or get them to take your side on sort of something. And you couldn't do that with Karen. Like she did not have an, she did not have an ego in that sense that, that you could, you know, not to say she wasn't proud of her work and she, and all that, but she didn't carry her ego in, into the work. And as a result, it never was a liability for her. Um, Interesting. At least not, cre- not at least not creatively. I don't know what it was like in the business sense and blah 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 blah. But like in the way I interacted with her, like that, and and as a result, it made her more effective creatively because in a way, she could just look at what was there for just what was there as opposed. Because I do sort of feel like when certain people get get um, more successful, and I've sort of seen this happen, they kind of bring their ego into the creative process. And, and, and that and, and that can come into like, oh, I want it to be more my way because like I'm just used to sort of seeing things my way. Or it can just be, um, you know, I, I want things, I like things because they remind me more of like how I do, th- how I do things or how the things I was successful with. And I think part of the reason why Vertigo was successful and part of the reason why there was so much varied, uh, qual- varied genres of, of quality stuff coming from Vertigo was the fact that Karen didn't bring her ego into the creative process. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just like, oh, I'm going to pitch you a Sandman book. And like, and Karen as a person who, who, you know, who edited Sandman is going to be like, I love this book because it reminds me of Sandman. Like, she could appreciate all many, many different types of stories and sort of see the quality from it. And I do think that has a little something to do with the fact that she didn't bring her ego into the, into the, into that portion of the equation. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like the entire philosophy sort of like ties into being diagnostic as an editor rather than prescriptive. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Where it's like, I'm not going to tell you what, you know, sort of medication to fix this problem. I yeah. am just sort of here to tell you that there is a problem here or there is something to sort of be fixed or worked on or whatever. Uh, and that, you know, you are kind of the the person to figure out what the exact method is of, of yeah. fixing that. Totally, totally. A hundred percent. That's really interesting. Uh, so, so as you're, you know, like working with all these, obviously at Vertigo, it's a, it's a stable of incredibly talented writers, artists, creatives in general. Um, as a writer yourself, what were, 
and we talked about obviously learning lessons from from Karen, but what were some of the things that you picked up from the writers that you were working with? Is there anything to you that kind of stands out from those years that that has stayed with you as as a creative? Um, one of the things that it, a little bit of sort of a mishmash of 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 lessons I've uh, learned and quotes from sort of people. I distinctly remember Mike Carey used to talk about where you pitch your tent or where a story pitches its tent mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And, and I, that had had a lot of, that had a lot of resonance with me. Um, especially, you know, while I was at Vertigo, I worked on sort of a lot of political stuff. And one of the things I realized and that I kind of brought into my own work is that I think in my opinion, there's a, bad way of doing sort of socially relevant and political stories. And that's where mm. you're trying to get the stories to mean something, to communicate a message, to, to you know, where, where, where that agenda kind of supersedes the story. And I think sure. one of the things like working with someone like Mike Carey and sort of the way he looked at stories was it telling those stories is more about where you pitch your tent, that if you pitch mm-hmm. your tent in the right place, all the soil around it is political. All the soil around it is it, you know, talks about the world or is a commentary on the world that you don't have, need to force any of that, you know? Uh-huh. So like, you know, a great, you know, the perfect example I mentioned already, it was like the West Wing, right? The West Wing was a, a show set in the White House. And as a result, a show set in the White House, they could do an episode about Thanksgiving and it has a political message because it's politicians working working on it. But it's not like Aaron Sorkin had to sit in the room being like, well, what political statement do I want to make about Thanksgiving? You sure. know? And so like, and so working in Vertigo, that sort of really, that really taught me a lot of, you know, if, if you set the, if you, if you, if you pitch your tent in the, in, in the right soil, a lot of that stuff about politics, about social issues and all that, that will come naturally. And then, and because you pitch in the right soil, you don't need to think about what I want to say. You can just Mm -hmm. tell a story and it will say something because as people, our actions say something about sort of the greater nature of the world. Mm-hmm. If anything, the work that you have to do is make sure you're not saying something that you don't actually agree with, or that, or or that you, or who, or the consequences of which you might not actually agree with. Like those are those are the things I feel like you have to worry about if you're telling stories in sort of politically politically mind mind, mind territory. And that was something sure, I sure. got working at at Vertigo and, and working with sort of the people there, and just again like working with sort of writers who are. Much, I mean, the, the, all the writers I worked with were so much smarter than me and so much more talented than, than, than me. Like, I, I think if I had stayed an editor at Vertigo, I probably would have never um, uh, got into comic book writing just because it, it was just like, it was always like the best in the industry. And so sure. like, as a fledgling writer coming to look out, at people that are yeah. like, they're like peak, you know, yeah. and trying to compare yourself against that. So I think for me, it was just kind of like, I, and during that time I did my own writing and, but I wouldn't do comic writing. I would do like screenplays and short stories yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it was because I needed that creative outlet, but, um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, a, I, 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 it was hard to think like, oh, I'm going to, you know, it, it felt like at that time, the best use of my creative energy was to support other people. Mm-hmm. who had much more talent uh than i do that to sort of to sort of tell their to tell those stories no that yeah, i mean that makes it makes a lot of sense and I, I think that like we we do all sort of and especially i'm sure when you're seeing it up close you, there's probably room to be even more in awe but it's it's yeah. always that thing of like looking at someone who's at the height of their creative power and, and yeah. methodology uh, <laughs> and comparing yeah, yeah. 
you know, wherever, wherever you're at on your own road. Um, that, but, but that is really interesting. And I, I am curious since sort of, you know, leaving that editorial, you know, job and, and having that sort of be your mentality every day. Is there a way that that mindset still comes out? Like, for instance, when you're, you know, editing your own work or, or revising or whatever, like, does it feel like that same editor mind being activated? Or is it totally different because you are the one who has to prescribe? It's, it, it's, it's interesting, because um, I actually think a lot about uh, if you read Robert Rodriguez's book, uh, Rebel Without a Crew, He's uh-huh. got this he has this fascinating thing about as a writer you work as a writer you you work the quickest when your inner editor is at its weakest. So mm-hmm. his big theory is that morning writers write write a lot because their inner editor hasn't woken up yet. And so sure. they get to write and their inner editor kicks in. And then night writers uh, write a lot because their inner editor is exhausted. <laughs> and and so their writer can go to that and it's an interest it's a fascinating nice. thing because it kind of puts your editor and the, your inner editor and your inner writer in cop in conflict with each other sort of constantly sure. and so like you only write when one of them is off their game is, is when your internet <laughs> is off the game it's kind of the way that mindset and it, it for me that was sort of the case and it's been a while sort of a lot of my process honestly the way i kind of look at it is i have a lot more experience editing than i'm than i have writing and i have uh-huh. writing i I think I am a good editor. I think I'm an all right writer. I like to think I'm getting better every day. Um, sure. But like, I, I feel confident in my editing because like that's a little bit more tested. Um, mm-hmm. And and so what the way I look at it is, I'm a good editor, and so I can I know how to make an all right writer look like a better writer. So, <laughs> and and that's how I look at my process. Where so like a lot of what I do is just finding, and it, it's it's been a long stage of trial and error of finding ways to just get myself to put words on a page so my inner editor can come in and actually make do something useful with mm-hmm. with it and so um you know one of the reasons why i love comics is it's it's very mo- comics is very modular writing more so than any other uh in my opinion any other medium where mm-hmm. you know you can spend the day being like oh, i'm not in it today well i can figure out how these next few pages are going to be formatted you know there's going to be a splash here there's going to, this is going to break this maybe there's a nine panel grid here da, 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 da. And, and then you're not sort of into the scene work and then sometimes you're like all right i i'm it's i'm more into scene work today so i'm just going to write this scene that i've allotted three pages for and, and all that but as a result sure. it, it can be split up in a way that you know i at least haven't found to sort of split up any other any of the other types of writing that that i do yeah you it's know, not and as I, clean because because in in if you're writing a screenplay or a, a, a you know even like an episode of TV or something, it's not every page is not as structured in the same exactly. way as, as in comics because you have that sort of mini arc of every single page that you're writing that you can kind of like use as your guideline to sort of structuring. Exactly, exactly, and and a lot of times you know. You know, I'll come. Uh, some of the ways I'll break a comic is like, all right, I know the things that need to happen in the comics. I know the big moments I have. All right, first vomit pass or first vomit outline pass is like these are the scenes I need. And then you do that. It's like, oh, okay, that's you know, fifteen out of twenty-two pages, or fifteen out of twenty pages, or ten sure. out of twenty pages. So now I'm like, all right. So based on that, I have ten. Based on the things I vomit, how much of that resembles a story? And mm-hmm. then, and then if it doesn't resemble a story, I have. 10 pages to kind of must to connect them and massage them in the most artful way to sort of look like a story and Mm -hmm. they're so structured that that structure really helps you 
break up the workday and make the workday sort of a lot easier as a result. Sure. Whereas, like, you know, I, I'm constantly paralyzed and constantly like in awe of prose writers because, like, oh my God. it just feels like they just go, they just sit down and they write. And they, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're putting that many words on a page. I know, I know. It's like they're no tricks. <laughs> they just have to write, like, they're just words. It's all they, yeah. you know, that, that's it. It's so no I'm artifice. like, yeah. So I, you know, and, and, and again, too, I think the great thing about like, you can kind of break it up a little bit more where it's just like, oh, I, um, the, the, uh, sorry, my, my nephew's waving at me right now. So I'm distracted. Oh, that was like, okay. No worries. <laughs> We're nephew waving. Always welcome. Yeah. In the workshop. Um, but, uh, but they, but like, but I can also don't have to be precious with the dialogue in sense like, mm-hmm. oh, I can just do temp dialogue here. And then at some totally. later stage, I can like, you know, brush this up and sort of make it good so as a result <laughs> my process of writing comics gives me a lot of leeway of throwing a lot of crap on a page where my editor mm-hmm. can kind of come in and say like this needs to get better this needs to be this this and that's sort of my process i'm constantly you know my writer dumps stuff out there and so my editor kind of <laughs> yeah. comes in and he's like all right let's actually like do something semi-professional with what you got here yep Man, I, I don't think I've ever written a line of dialogue that in my head I was going, oh, don't worry, this will this will be better at some point. Like every line is temp dialogue for me. <laughs> I I've never even written a tweet that I don't look back as like I could have done that with less words. I could have I definitely oh, totally. done that less words. And that that's an interesting game in comics. I think that that other mediums don't necessarily understand to the same degree the the brevity game. Yeah. Uh, where it's like you are actually because no other medium has no other visual medium rather has words that are taking up physical space. Yeah. Right. And, and also, especially in periodical comics, you have 22 pages to get it done typically like. And comics is a really fascinating thing too, where it's um, to exactly your point, because they take up physical space, you're not Mm -hmm. just looking at how the dialogue sounds. You're, you're not only paying attention to how the dialogue sounds, you're paying attention to how the dialogue looks and the sense of, you know, Oh, that sounds great, but that's a huge ass balloon in a in a <laughs> panel where I just don't have that space. So how can I get you something that feels as as good as the feel of that balloon, but takes place in sort of less in less words? You know, totally. Because the dialogue is part of the shot composition. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So and and that's the thing. Like I I when I, on and in my creator own books, I I my, my letter actually my entire creative team gets equity. But, it's, sure. I, but I feel like my letter deserves it the most because sure. I, I will always do a dialogue. You know, I will always do a dialogue pass, but my dialogue pass is always, you know, my best guess of what's going to my my dialogue pass. What I have to get the art in is, OK, this is what the story needs. But then mm-hmm. once the lettering is on, I look it's like, yeah, but does it actually does this dialogue yeah. actually aesthetically work for the page? Does it, you it know, flows so different. Yeah, it flows so different. And also sometimes too, like. I remember there's one panel of Infidel where it might, maybe it's a page. It might be like three or four panels where mm-hmm. they, I had to pair back on dialogue. And I think this is why I still don't know exactly, but I think it's because Aaron's ink line happened to have the same width as oh. the, the lettering. <laughs> so as yeah. a result, the panel looks so much denser, even yep. though it technically had the same amount of copy as other panels. So and that was like a that was a, a super interesting like discovery. Be like, oh, yeah. I've got to like change the way I attack the balloons here and and pare it down because even though there's the yeah. same amount of words, it looks like so much. It looks like this panel is filled with balloons because it's such a dense. We like you know with the incline, it's just so dense. So that was like yeah. a, so you're constantly for me, 
you know, like I worked at, I did a short story at one of the bigger publishers and, mm-hmm. and they, they won the editor the editor let me do like a lettering draft, which I think, which is standard right now. I think they all do that. But then after he did lettering draft, he was just kind of like, Oh yeah. Can you do a little less like lettering corrections? Because like, that's the whole point (laughs) of like lettering draft is, uh, is like, we don't do all these corrections. And I was kind of like, but I don't get to, I didn't get a chance to see what the letter looks like on the actual art. Like, and, and to me, it's kind of like, you know, you lose a little something without hand let, like hand lettering gives you a little something. And so digital lettering, like, certainly makes it easier and faster to do sort of stuff. But I think the other thing it gains as a result is that in order to make digital lettering, like look aesthetically pleasing, there is a little bit of, you know, just recalibrating. Like the thing I'm constantly fascinated by is like every artist has a different word, word density to their pages, you know? So like certain artists can do, can do more balloons and more, and, and more, and more copy, but others sort of can't. And even with this book, you know, me and Alex, you know, for a lot of the issues, we're doing a four tier, we're doing four tiers, uh, a four tier page, which it's kind of become standard now to do three tiers. And one of the things I've realized for four tiers is that like, oh, because there are more tiers and technically more panels, you can actually have less copy on each panel because of that. And so as a result, it was a a process of feeling like, well, how much is too much and how much is enough? And especially for this book, like we wanted to one of the things I like about what we did with Infidel was that it, mm-hmm. the goal anyway was to kind of do a horror movie on a comics page to kind of give you the same mm-hmm. jolts that a horror movie had. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with Good Asian is to kind of give you the experience that you're reading a pulp novel through the comics page. And so like mm-hmm. and to us, to me, that meant making it a little denser, you know, there are certain um, uh, not tricks, but tools you can kind of use, you know, mm-hmm. there are, there are a little bit more, you know, the genre like moment loud. to moment things or yeah but also caption work right you can do sure. caption work a little little oh, yeah. differently you know it doesn't have to be as visceral you know mm-hmm. it can you know like brubaker is a, a great example of doing that where sometimes it's a voiceover about action and you're watching like little snippets of that action and, yeah. and you know and so a two-page scene takes place over a week or, or, or something like that and and that kind of comes with the genre a little bit a little you know it's a little bit more accepted with the genre so a, a lot of that is trying to like really you know and it's one of the things that i think is fun is sort of taking comics and using the grammar of comics and trying to say like all right how can we do something that is very distinctly comics but hopefully in the best way give you the experience that reminds mm-hmm. you of something else but still but not trying to copy that but just like make it the comic book version of that and and i know that's yeah. one of the things we're trying in the same way that in infidel we try to give you jump scares and 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 and, and all that sort of stuff that you're used to seeing in movies and not used to seeing comics um how do we use the comics vocabulary to 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 get the best hopefully the best out of you would get out of reading a pulp novel yeah that that makes total sense it's really interesting and i think it, like even just talking about internal monologues or or captions in comics i think that's one of those things where it's become the norm to not use internal monologue in comics often yes. because writers i think are thinking so so much in the language of film and tv yeah. these days yes and 100% because internal monologue is something that inherently will most of the time come off as as cheesy or bizarre in yeah. in film or tv in comics, it is kind of one of those things where not only because of the the brevity of the medium and because of how accelerated the pace is, but also just because it reads differently as something that you are reading yeah. from inside the person's head than them telling to you from inside their head, right? Like it feels more like a thought when you're reading it yeah. rather than someone saying it. Yeah. Um, 
And so I, I think that that's one of those like kind of lost art things, not lost art, but like it just isn't done as much and is really a benefit of the medium where you can get inside someone's head in that way and still have it feel like it's not weirdly disconnected where they're narrating their own thoughts. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like a part of the fun of comics is finding those ways to kind of use all the tools of comics. Like I appreciate sure. like on Jason Aaron's Avengers run, like he's kind of brought thought bubbles back, thought balloons yeah. back. And like, and, and so, and, and that's a really interesting, like anytime I think Bendis did it when he was doing it, mighty Avengers for a while. Mm-hmm. And like, and that is something that I find really interesting is just like, what is the best, like, that's a tool that we had that, uh, that has completely fallen out of fashion, but it is like a tool that we have in comics what is a way to do it that still feels modern that doesn't take you out of the store because it feels antiquated and so like whenever like writers do something like that i'm always kind of like leaning in and being like is it working is there a way i could do something like that like how does this how does this work well it's kind of i think that's kind of the same with the you know you talk about the four tier thing where that that's sort of like a will eisner thing right where where he always had this rule of like you know you could only basically your maximum would be two balloons per panel because you'd have one character expressing something one character responding and then you got to move to the next moment and of course there's ways to like work without that but that was one of his rules and it's kind of one that's been of course in the kind of you know bendis age not to like you know memeify him or like play into it or anything but like in the bendis age and in the age of people who have been inspired by that type of storytelling you know you can have six balloons in a panel and 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 people are cool with it and there's certainly stories for where that's very effective um but it's interesting like you're saying going back to some things that feel more antiquated yeah yeah but but i think too like bendis is a great example of like I think Bendis can get a bad rap for, for all that kind of totally. stuff. And, and sometimes Bendis writes so, so, so much as sometimes that I think um, that, that, you know, so sometimes it works better than others, but I think sure. one of the reasons why Bendis can pull it off is that at the end of the day, he's an artist. And so when he's yeah. doing like six balloons, there's actually, it, it, it works aesthetically, you know, yeah. like, and it I think a lot your of people, really, really well. yeah, it guides your eye really well. And it goes all over the page and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So in a way, like, so that's it's a great example of like something purely comics where it it's auditory. So it's you get that you know whether it's Mamedian or or, sure. or or it's working that sort of dialogue that has that staccato kind of rhythm, but also yeah. it's visual where it it gives you a sweep across the page, and so it kind of does sort of two things two things at once. And so yeah. and, and I think that's part of to me is is the fun of just like because I think. You know, I don't have an art background, and so the closest sure. thing I have to an art background is I've just read a ton of comics, and yeah. so I and so I'm one of the skills that I think I bring to my art direction is hopefully it's an artist think of it as a skill <laughs> um, is the fact that I just have a big vocabulary to sort of pull from in terms of you remember this page from this comic where they did this and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, let's try something like like that, you know, because I think actual artists can probably could do that without having to reference other comics but mm-hmm. i you know that's kind of how my sort of approach to it is because i need something to be like oh this this is proof of concept this works i saw this happen here and it looked really cool yeah. um you know i i just don't have i'm not enough of an artist to yeah i don't think i don't think i've ever done it where it's just something <laughs> here's an idea that i have and uh can you try to draw it and can, you, and, you can, and can you try to draw this idea and i'll explain to you where everything needs to go on the page and, and, and all that sure kind of stuff. sure how do you I, i'm actually curious in sort of talking about the art direction do you have any hard and fast rules for yourself and this is something i ask a lot of people because i find that it's a different answer every time but like are there any hard and fast rules format wise that you've picked up whether it be the amount of brevity to have on a page or like the ratio of script page to to comics page like 
you have any signposts like that so, or do you well, kind of stay free? I, I do. I, I do actually. Um, one of the things that I live by is it's an Alan Moore thing that he did. He said, mm-hmm. used to say where um, I think he got from Mort Weisinger where a comics page can hold 210 words of copy. And then, and you can find out how much um, copy can go in a specific panel by just mm-hmm. basic division. So mm-hmm. like there's 210 pages of copy. So if I'm going to do something, if it's a three tier page and, and one is a panel long, one is a page page wide panel, then that then I can put 70 words of copy in that panel. And that's my general guide. Now, what I found is depending on the genre, that will slide up or slide down. Like I will probably I will probably I've yet to do like a full issue of a superhero comic. Uh, I've written short stories and so, and, and I give myself the, ad. well, there's different rules for short stories, but there probably aren't. (laughs) And I'm just, I'm just like hacking it out. But, um, but I, I generally find that maybe you want to divide that in half for a superhero comic. So it's like 105 words a page for a superhero comic, just to kind of keep it moving. I, I do a thing in my books where this, it's one of those things now that like, when I say it, 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 it's going to be super uh, clear that I'm saying so I'll, I'll tell it to you I'll probably never I'll, I'll never repeat it again because it's probably a bad idea for me to even end up doing this but like one of the things I've kind of noticed especially on image books because like uh-huh. I don't know what you're like but like I've got a ton of comics that right. like I, I I need to read and so and at yeah. certain point it's just like I got to read these comics now and one of the things I found yeah. is that a lot of image books actually and some superhero books they will do this thing where there's actually like minimal copy on like the first three pages. And so, or at least I, I will read it and be kind of, of like, oh. don't out me like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then by the fourth page, I realize that's where the copy sort of starts. But at that point, like I'm yeah. 20% into the comic. So I'm like, I might as well just finish this thing. I practically yep. like, I've, I've got such a sunk cost. And the next thing I know, I'm done, done reading the comic. So totally. I have sort of done this thing. Again, I, I now think I will never repeat this outside from this podcast because it doesn't feel like it, it's doing me any favors. <laughs> it's but, exclusive. Uh, yeah, exactly. But but I do this thing now when I can, the first three pages of the book to to have my word count on those on mm-hmm. those pages, just to give a reader an easier sense of sort of work. Because I just, yeah. uh, you know, I try to write like I see myself as sort of like the typical comic book reader who has like just way too many issues. I have way too <laughs> yep. many long boxes in in my house. They could all be trades and fit nicely in a bookshelf. And I still prefer long boxes. I still prefer yeah. single issue comics. And and so as a result, like, and so I'm writing towards like me in a sense. And I just know that like if I have a bunch of comics lying lying there on the page, uh, but I pick up an issue and I'm like, oh, I read this first page in like ten seconds, and like yep. second, they're like, oh, I read this in less than a minute. And then like you know that gets me to like read that comic that much that much quicker and so totally. that's something i keep in mind when i'm sort of writing but yeah i don't think i'm going to repeat that after I, this because i don't think it's any favors <laughs> well no i mean it, i i think that's it's it's definitely something that i've i've always kept in mind and obviously like i've you know the amount of comics that i've written is is still pretty minimal but like mm-hmm. Uh, or well, the amount of comics that I've written that have actually gone to an artist or that I've drawn is pretty right. minimal. I've got a bunch of scripts that'll never see the light of day because they suck. But like, that, <laughs> that is something that I've thought about is like the momentum building, right? That that when yes, you're yes. when someone's reading a comic, there is just sort of that even even at the basest level of like they are turning a page and that they want that motion to keep going, right? Like that they've already gotten three pages in and that they're already, you know, to a certain degree invested and that they're already moving forward. Their eye is, yeah. is used to going that direction already. Like all of those like sort of yeah. subconscious things that I think build to like 
make someone more invested in going in. Even if your story, you know, even yeah. if you're confident that your story has a hook right away, you know, just that base level of right. like, I am going to keep going in the direction that I am currently going because that's the natural thing, right? Like, um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I no, think totally. that's like and, a really and smart in a lot thing. of ways, it's like the. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's like the comic book equivalent of what's that great opening line? What's that great opening yep. paragraph to to your chapter or your or yep. your novel and all that? It, it is exactly what you say. What do you do to kind of keep the momentum, keep the momentum mm-hmm. going? Like I again, like when I think about how I read, you know, it makes no sense. But because I have so many so many comics, I'll keep a whole mini series and read it all at once. So and at which yep, point, like, why don't I just wait for the trade? It was like, well, <laughs> but then I have a trade and I want the individual comics and. Yep. But when I'm reading that way, you do have this sense of like, all right, I finished one comic, and then I pick up another one. It's like, wow, there's a lot of pages on that, and I really do have a lot of a lot of words on that page. And like, I'm not lazy, but I do have to have things I need to do. So, and then you yeah. you have that conversation with yourself. Whereas, you know, again, if it's just like one fight, and I'm just like, oh, I you know, I just looked at it, and I, I've technically yeah. read this page, and then you just kind of keep going. Yeah. No, totally. I and I think it's like, you know, a Brian K. Vaughn thing that he does very well. I feel like Brian K. Vaughn is best on the first and last page of all of his issues. Like yeah, those are the yeah, yeah. places where he really makes it sing. Obviously, like there's the iconic like last page of of Ex Machina that people talk about a lot, but like even, you know, the first page of Saga like really pulls people in and and Why the Last Man, of course. Like there's a lot of those really or the last page of Why the Last Man especially, but yeah. Well, I think Vaughn also is very good at um that one one is fan, one fantastic at structure and yeah. and two when you talk about lessons learned from other other um other comic book writers and other vertical mm-hmm. comic book writers like i never worked with with brian uh but just as a fan of his stuff mm-hmm. you know like if you look at his comics you totally can see the strength of a, a splash page where yeah. or, or oh ending God. an issue in a ending an issue in a splash page where yep. sometimes it's just like, what was that sound? And, yep. and technically if you, as a panel, that's like a panel, like, and then you move on to like the next sort of panel. So, <laughs> yeah. But, but by turning that, what was that sound into a splash, you've instantly built up all this suspense and you can yep. end an issue and all that suspense. And that's just a matter yeah. of like how you handle, handle your real estate. So like, yeah. So if you have like, and it's, it's fascinating where, you know, you can have two pages that are three panels a page. And if you end your third panel with, oh my God, what was that sound? Then it just yeah. feels like a dud. But yeah. if you take your first page and you move up two panels and it's a five panel page and your second page is a splash of what was that sound, then you get this much more dramatic out that feels like a cliffhanger. Even though totally. technically it could have been just been the end of a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, it's it's really funny. I There's like two things that I heard him say once in like an interview mm-hmm. or something like that, uh, that for some reason always stick in my head if i'm if i'm writing a, a script and that is the mm-hmm. um in, in his mind five panels is the ideal page mm-hmm. uh yeah, for yeah, whatever yeah. reason and i don't know if he was saying that in jest but for whatever reason that's been like a sort of you know bible to me where i'm like okay i want that to be yeah. kind of my average sometimes i'll do six i might do like seven if there's some insert panels or something like that you know or like nine yeah. whatever like if there's like very small sort of easy shots and i might go to like three or four like or obviously a splash page. And then the other thing is the sort of end an issue on a, an exclamation or uh, uh, an exclamation point question mark, right? Like what oh, the hell is this and what is about that's to happen, right? Like where it's like that huge expression yeah. of emotion and leading a question. And I, that's always the thing that I'm like, if I'm looking at a last page, I'm like, okay, how can I make this like hit more and ask a question more? <laughs> and he always does it that's with like two words. Yeah. Like that's saying. really interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's well, I, but I also think too, you know, if you are, 
it, it's funny, like if you are doing a splash page for impact, there's only mm-hmm. a certain amount of quote unquote time that yep. that moment can last in order to have that dramatic impact. So as a result, you get like five words, like, you know, like yeah. it's, it, you, you can't really end your, end your big issue on a splash page with like totally. four balloons in there because it just, <laughs> it, then it feels like a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But ending it in a moment is, is yeah. so much more valuable. Yeah. Um, Okay, so so as we're you know we're starting to 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 get into wrapping up here, but I I kind of want to I mean like we've talked about just writing for comics and, and editing, but obviously like you've you've done a lot in your creative career from show running, writing, directing. Um, I'm curious in terms of planning your stories, right? Like taking getting from that place where you feel like you've gestated whatever the idea is long enough that you you're you're ready to kind of move on. How do you plan your stories? Is is there, you know, a tangible part of the process where you like have to work in a notebook or cards or something like that? Or like, are you someone who kind of lays things out visually? Oh, like what, what is, what do you tend to that's go to? That's a good to? question. That's a really, really good question. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things I feel like I do is mm-hmm. I feel like I am never organized or fast enough to my lack of organization and speed can be my boon in the sense of my docket will be filled but i have another idea i want to do and so it just has to percolate and i just like give off sort of random notes sure um and then from there when it's actually time to write i think what my main thing is i write i'm trying to think if this is true i think my thing is i'll start off writing a pitch document and it's only you, I mean, maybe people might see it at some later point, but it's only mainly for me. Mm-hmm. And it's for me to understand what is the intent of the project? Like, what am I tra- hoping for it to accomplish, both in terms of entertainment and if there's any sort of bigger idea I want to talk about in it? And so, you know, and so a lot of that for me, my process then becomes filling the blanks, where mm. once I have that template of, okay, this is my pitch template, then it's um, okay. Here, you know, I know a lot of times it's this is the artistic intent of what I want the project to do, and that will be sort of very clear. And this is the mm-hmm. genre, and and then slowly, well, these are the characters and all that kind of stuff. What is always, always, always last is the plot. Um, sure. Even even as an editor, I hated reading the plot. I was just kind of, I it's just like you'll. It, you know, it will get to it in script. My eyes glaze over. I don't care about any of the characters yet. And so it's like so much work reading plot. But of course, yeah. like when I'm developing a thing, like the plot becomes sort of crucial. Yeah. Um, but so a lot of times I'm, you know, I have this like pitch document in my head of, and I'm filling out the pitch document. And then from there, I am trying to sort of say like, from that pitch document, I will sort of see like, oh, these are the blanks. And the blanks is like, oh, this is clearly the stuff you haven't thought about. Like maybe mm-hmm. I haven't thought about these characters enough uh, in, in a, in, or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I I have a it, – it's the only book I've, I've ever uh, – only idea I've ever had done this way. But like I have an idea for something I want to do in uh, – in the future and i i i really want to do it so i i think i will actually do it but mm-hmm. like it's the first time it's like oh i know what the variant covers are going to be for for, for this book <laughs> like i like I, I actually know like i don't know what the story is but i know what the variant covers are going to be so like i a lot of it is just like filling in the, in those blanks and hopefully there the goal is and i think any writer can sort of say to it is that sure. you know 
the more you stuff you put on the page or actually on the page, then you sort of see the connective tissue behind mm-hmm. these ideas that you have. And you're like, oh, this is a thing that's about this. Or, well, if I'm going to do these things, well, then, of course, my protagonist needs to be this and all that. And sure. those things can kind of lead. And so the idea is then you fill it up. And then from there, and then, and then and yeah, and then from there, um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, the, for me, the, 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 the thing that the section that's always the last to write is the story section. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that story section is the plot. And, and then I'm just trying to break it up. And sometimes it's just like three acts. I, you know, I'm trying to break it up enough so that I can communicate to someone sort of what is going to happen in the course totally. of it. If it's like, a, if it's a TV project, maybe it's, it, it's less of that story because it's going on for so long and all mm-hmm. that. But that, that's kind of how I work where I, I'm trying to fill out this like theoretical pitch document in, in my head. Mm-hmm. No, that that makes total sense, and that that is interesting because it is a way of like, I mean, like we talked about before, right? When when your editor mind has to start yes. getting involved, you know, that you can be prescriptive, you know, there and or or at least be diagnostic to then get prescriptive, where it's like, okay, I'm filling out sort of these, uh, you know, these fields or whatever that that yeah. I'm kind of like just using as signposts of like, what have I thought about well enough, and what am I still lacking in? Yeah. Um, and not that it's like, you know, you're not checking off boxes to write a story, but that you're, you're using that as a way of kind of seeing where the areas are that need a little more attention. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. I find that really interesting. Are, are you someone who like keeps just a, a constant running notebook of like half-baked ideas that most of the time you'll never look at again? Or, or do you tend to like really focus in on on the things that you're looking at? I, I, I have a notebook of half-baked ideas i have a file Mm. of half-baked ideas and then i don't know and if i was any good i would consolidate them and organize them or but but (laughs) it like it honestly feels like i might as well have like a bucket at my desk with like scraps of paper on it considering how badly occasionally i will go back if i'm working like on an anthology project i might like go back and look at some of that stuff to see if it triggers any ideas um but yeah no most of the time most of it, like, if it's a new book I have, they've been mm-hmm. just sitting in my head for a, wh- a while. Sure. Um, yeah. I also feel the need to, one of the things I've learned about myself, and it's the reason why I, I'm not as quick as I want to be, is mm-hmm. a lot of times what will excite me for, about a project is is not knowing if I can pull it off, is mm-hmm. is this idea of, like, like The Good Asian is just kind of like, oh, let's do a noir story that involves this sort of history of asian the asian american history well what does that look like i never seen anything that that looks like that does that work you know mm-hmm. infidel was the same way it's like let's let's do a horror story that also talks about xenophobia like well how how could you pull that off like what would that look like in order to make that work right so i've got like a bunch of ideas that are kind of like these are the things i want you know this is the world the genre this is what i want to accomplish this is what i want to talk about and this is the thing but like, how do I actually make that work? And so that stuff will be percolating for a while. Like I've got like mm-hmm. at least a half dozen of those where like I haven't cracked how it is yet. But sure. then they percolate for a while and then you see something and like, oh, I can do this. And then sort of the thing will sort of break break open. You know, sure. I wish I, you know, the, the story, I, I would certainly enjoy it better. I think it'd be easier for me if it, if I did more of like, oh, I wanted to do like, my version of a superhero or something like that and just like <laughs> r- write it um i i that's not how, that doesn't like get me excited i think what gets right. me excited is like i've never seen any and unfortunately this is what it turns into a lot of work of just like 
I've never seen anyone do this. And like, chances are you haven't seen anyone do it because it's a ton of work that no one actually wants to do. <laughs> and then I get all excited and realize like, oh, right. Like, this yeah. is, like it's so funny. Like when I, the good, the, like the good Asian, just to show you like how bad my like forethought is. Uh-huh. I, you know, when I did Infidel to me and I, a lot of people have since come around and like acknowledge like all like the research behind Infidel, which I'm very grateful for because there, that there was a ton of research. But I remember sure. when I was writing, I was just kind of like, man, this is one of those books where I'm doing all this research. And the whole point is for you never to like see the research. And like that is on the one hand, great. On the other hand, like I put in a lot of work and like, I would like to get like some acknowledgement uh, of it. <laughs> and so then when it was, when I came upon the good, or when we started working on the good Asian, I'm like, this is great. Like I'm doing all this research and like, you like people are forced to sort of like like you can't ignore it like it's there and like it will be gratifying but then yeah. i working on it it was just kind of like yeah but like there's so much more research that you have to do like there's so <laughs> like a volume of the good age takes so much research because i'm like you know i've got a dozen books on my desk at any given time and then you got to mm-hmm. read it and then you got to let it percolate in your head and internalize it so like it just like flows flows a little bit so it was one of those things where it's just kind of like yeah this this thing that i thought was like I, I naively thought it'd be the equal amount of work, but I'll get more credit for the work I'm doing. It's turned into like way more work. And yet again, <laughs> it's a ton of the work. And I think that's storytelling, right? It's, I, right. Hemingway sort of said that like a story is like an iceberg. Like for every bit of it you you, you see, there's eight times more that's underneath the water. And sure. so, so as a result that like, the, for the good agent, there's a ton of research, but there's a few research you see, but there's all this enormous amount of research I had to do that that is invisible. But I needed just because in order to author something, I need to speak about it with authority, and mm-hmm. I needed the research to give me authority on the topic matter. That's that's really interesting. I wonder. I mean, with all that, and I, do you feel like in terms of like doing doing a lot of research and like making mm-hmm. yourself super educated on the subject that you're writing about, do you feel like that helps you combat? you know, the sort of um, insecurity or like imposter syndrome that tends to come with creativity at all? I mean, that's a good question. I I think, I think it definitely, I think it definitely helps. Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, yes. It's funny. I I have a feeling the answer is yes, but like, it's so (laughs) deep ingrained in me that I'm, that I'm not even aware that I'm, I'm doing it to battle my imposter sort of syndrome. I, I also think too, that at least for my, last two books you mm-hmm. know for infidel and for good asian i did a sergeant rock short story that's kind of that was a little bit like this as well is that but, but the good agent actually is a really sort of good example because it kind of goes back to sort of one of the things that i'm talking about it's just like i'm talking about asian american history and i'm constantly right. you know i'm constantly questioning my my own authenticity in relationship to that to that material sure. and so as a result the on the one hand, I think, yes, it absolutely combats the imposter syndrome. But because I'm already questioning my authenticity, there's also the bit of, like, I just don't want to be an asshole out of ignorance. Yeah. And and because when you do that, then the work just becomes exploitative. And, and like, I don't – I like to think, anyway, like, people don't get into telling these stories with the intention of being exploitative. That is just totally. something that just accidentally happens along the way. So for me, a lot of it is – you know, it, it, a lot of the research comes from wanting to do something that talks about the world that we're in. But without that research, I fear that I'm exploitative. I also kind of feel like I'm professionally stupid. Like I, <laughs> I, like, I am a person that, like, if you ask me a topic on anything, I'm like, I don't know. Like, sure. Like, you sure. know, like, I, yeah, yeah. And so, and so uh, 
the 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 work that I do is buttressed with by a lot of research, just so that I can be educated on a topic to talk about it. But like, if you ask me about anything that I didn't write a book about, I'm just an, I'm an idiot, and so like I will not give you an informed opinion. And it's why mm-hmm. I don't post that much on social media about stupid sure. things because like my opinion is not informed. But like for my books, I spend yeah. a lot of time making sure that opinion is informed from as many different perspectives as as I can. And and so and so that's a lot of the other reason why that I I do as much research as I do on my on my books because I do want to do something that again talks about the world as it is while also fully realizing that like I'm not on a casual basis I am not as informed as the world as I should be right. and so if I'm going to write a story about it I better do the work and get informed more so than I am normally. Well, I mean, I do think like you know, and and, and you know, not to not to uh, blow smoke or anything, but like. I do think that that does tie into I don't know who the quote is from and I don't know the exact quote but but that sentiment of you know the smartest person in the room is the one who knows they know very little right yeah yeah and, yes 100% and I, I think I, that that's a huge key for a writer right is to understand that you don't know a lot about something and and that that will motivate you to sort of like educate yourself and 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 make that you know task more uh well informed yeah and and I do think you know like the signs of a good writer in my opinion, are mm-hmm. good listeners. And I do think like some of my favorite writers have not done their best work when you when you go back and realize like, oh, that was in a period of their life where maybe they weren't listening as much. Maybe they got a little sure. more used to talking than they did listening. And, yeah. and so I think a lot of it comes from that too, of just kind of like, you know, it, it can be really easy to sort of buy the hype you should be renting and think yeah. that like any idea you have is sort of, you know, is sort of genius where, you know, where a lot of times any success you had kind of came from the fact that you were just paying attention and listening to people yeah. that, you know, to whatever the things were that, that, that were happening at the time. Interesting. It certainly makes more empathetic work at the very least. Yes. Yes. Hopefully so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious when, you know, it, when you have it like obviously using infidel as an example uh when you have a work that comes out and 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 is well received right mm-hmm. obviously infidel people very much loved it you know like i i i i haven't seen any detractors in my personal view it seems like it was very universally acclaimed i'm sure you might have focused in on something if there was ever like a <laughs> review that wasn't praised but right. uh uh i'm curious does that type of 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 you know well like good reception or or praise or whatever does that in your own mind help to alleviate some of the um you know the natural sort of creative insecurities imposter syndrome whatever or do you feel almost like it makes you worry more that there's now a higher stakes level of of imposter syndrome where you're worried that people are going to find out right like that that thing that people are always afraid of of like they're going to find out i'm bad they're going to find out i'm not good at this does that praise help or hurt that feeling for me um there are aspects of it that are irrelevant for, for me. Sure. Um, partly because every new project is a new project. And, right. and so like, you know, with a good Asian, I'm working a crime, like, you know, so that's a whole different genre. So who's to right. say that things I was able to get right in horror will translate when I try, try for crime. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it, for the good Asian too, there is a history that, that, that I'm working with that I'm, I'm trying to, pay pay tribute to but also portray accurately and so for me the the there's way more pressure to get that right than it is to sort of live up to sort of the success sort of for 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 infido um that said though there are there are different uh insecurities that come in comparison like 
you know, the good, good Asian is almost twice as long as sort of infidel is. Wow. And so I, you know, I'm a very big believer. I think it was Dorothy Parker who said a novel is just a short story with mistakes, you know, where, <laughs> and so the idea that like the book is longer, which means there's just more room for me to fuck up and right. there's more room for the pacing to lag and all that kind of stuff. So like sure. those kind of comparisons that I like, you know, Infidel had the benefit of being five and you're in and you're out and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm sticking around for a little bit longer. And so like, mm-hmm. if people are expecting kind of like the intensity of Infidel, like I hope I'm giving it to you, but, but can I actually do that for twice the, as long a period of time in a completely different genre? Like I, you know, I don't know. Right. Like, the audience will tell me. And, and, and then I think also too, there's also a little bit of the, the example happens. I feel like more on the sales side of it, where it's just kind of like, I live in my own little vacuum where I know what infidel sales were, but I, but because it was my first book, I don't actually know what sales that aren't as good are. So then my, my pressure is like, Oh my God, is the sale? Like, have I prepared enough if the, if these sales aren't as good, but meanwhile, it's a more ambitious book. It's twice the length, which means it's twice the investment and, and all that kind of stuff. So like, it's those kind of things, but less, I think there is, the temptation to think that like, oh, if you had a successful book, do you have pressure to like live up to that last successful book? And and for me, that wasn't the case just because I felt like there were a lot of other, other things that were stressing me out first sure. than, then, you know, and, and also I feel like the books are so different, you know, and I, and on the one hand, I enjoy like jumping through genre and doing different things, but that comes with sort of the, 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 you know, the, the stress of like, oh, our, our audience is going to be like, why doesn't he just do horror? Like, we like him doing horror. What's he doing with this other stuff? <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I, I think, um, yeah, there the, the idea that like your insecurities are only ever going to be replaced by different insecurities <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it never gets better or worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, one of the things I find is like when I talk to like very successful people, I'm fascinated by the different ghosts that all of them are chased by or, or chased, you you know, like, you know, I've been in the room with a very successful writer where literally every wall, every corner of the walls of his office is filled with, um, with achievements of, of accolades of things that he has done. And he will still sort of see himself as always a bridesmaid, never the bride, you know? Um, And, and, but I also think that that's part of what it takes to kind of like be hungry to create the yeah. next thing. Uh, so, so it's, it's a very, you know, it, writing is, is, is such a dysfunctional lifestyle where, you know, <laughs> you know, a, a, a lot of that neuroses that kind of drive us that are probably aren't healthy are, are also what kind of sometimes can be one of the mm-hmm. things that kind of keep us honest and keep us needing to push ourselves and needing us to not rest on our laurels. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, one of the last questions I'll, I'll, I'll ask you here because I, I I'm, really curious it's a thing that i i don't often pay enough attention to but i think that um people listening to this show really love to hear mm-hmm. uh what, what what's an example of something that you feel like was a huge um hindrance to you creatively that once unlocked or or figured out sort of allowed you to achieve that next level of success like is there anything that you can kind of point to that you realize like oh me getting past this or overcoming this or figuring this out allowed me to kind of finally start sort of achieving whatever successes I was looking for. One of the things, um, one, I, I, know it's a very I don't know if I have a straightforward. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I don't know if I have a straightforward answer to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that definitely, I think about this all the time where I am so grateful for the jobs I didn't get. 
I am mm. so grateful for the jobs I didn't get. And I didn't know that at the mm-hmm. time. I mean, yeah. so for, for like, so for context, um, you know, I was an editor of Vertigo. Then I became an executive and I kind of helped create and then oversee the TV department mm-hmm. at DC. And then I quit to, to focus on my own writing. And it was seen as such as like, not a thing that you do that I think some people just assumed I was fired because they were like, you're in a very good job. Like, why would you quit that job? But I just really wanted to go back to writing for a multiple of different, multitude of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember at the time, a, another writer told me, he's like, oh, wow, you're just going to do it. Like, you didn't set yourself up with a job first. Like, that takes a lot of guts. And I'm like, <laughs> it does? And then I found out, oh, it does, because I didn't work for like two years. And and, wow. and, and nothing happened. And, and it was weird because, because I was in that position where I had hit the... Um, the uh, certain level of success, both as a TV executive and as a comic book editor, my friends were people with their own books, were critically acclaimed books, and they had their own TV mm-hmm. shows and they're all that sort of stuff. And I couldn't get traction on the very most basic level, and I was freaking out, and I was flip, and I was flipping out. And then sure. um, that led me down, and and it was also, but I look back at that now, and part of the reason was I had such a bad relationship with the work. I had worked uh, so long at a nine to five that I thought a writing job meant getting a nine to five writing job. And so I would look for like a TV writing job and all that kind of stuff. And when that sure, no sure. longer became an option, that's when I decided to do Infidel. And that's where I started applying for things. And what happened to me is both my TV and my comics writing career kind of hit at exactly the same time. And so mm-hmm. when Infidel happened, that was during a span where I had about an 18 month stretch where I did nonstop TV work where one job would end and the very next day, the next job would happen. And that happened for 18 months. And during that 18 months was the same time Infidel came out. And I was finishing Infidel and doing all the press for Infidel. And I was just like the first hour of the morning was like, you know, the last hour of the night was like answering interviews. The first hour of the morning was cleaning up those interviews and sending them out to people. And those are like my day as I was doing all this sort of stuff. So those, that hit at exactly the same time. And, and I, and now I just think like the version of my career that I freak out about, that I worry is going to end at any second, it, that I have now, like I thought I would have to pay my dues for so much longer than I did <laughs> to get there, which I would have had to do if I got the jobs that I thought I wanted when I wanted sure. them. Sure. You know? Right, like if you went up the writer's assistant path, yeah. or if you, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I would have, you know, done, you know, what five years on like a CW or an NBC show or whatever in order to like make the time to write a thing on the side, and it would have been like, you yeah. know, and then who knows if I would have had kids by then, and that would have been a problem. Like, right. you know, so like I'm so like I and I and it sounds like Pollyannish, and it sounds like you know, <laughs> just like trying to make the best out of of a of bad memories and all that but i look at it and i'm so grateful i didn't get those those jobs because like i'm doing exactly what i want to be doing right now and had but i didn't know it you know Mm -hmm. i didn't like i i didn't know that was an option to just start up doing that and i had to be forced to do that in order to do it and and so if i had gotten the jobs i thought i wanted like i wouldn't at all be I mean, and which is not to say I wouldn't be enjoying the work and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that I'm doing right now that I happen to very much love, um, you know, I, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing it exactly the way that I, that I love to do it. And and yeah. so so that is something I think about a lot about just how, you know, and I think a lot of that too was at the end of the, and and this is what you know is great about sort of writing as opposed to all the other things like mm-hmm. you're you're. There is, a, there is the issue of access. There is the issue of access of how do you get access to production. And that is right. not a, an insignificant thing. However, yeah. you 
you are only one script or story or one piece of material away from reaching that stuff. And you're constantly one piece of material away from yeah. reaching all those things. And if you put in something that is good, that speaks to an audience that has that, that, that speaks to an audience that can, that can get to it, that, 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 you know, for lack of a better word is commercial enough or, or, or which is just another way of saying it has an audience. Um, right. You, you know, that's accessible enough to an audience, you can put yourself closer to to the means of production to sort of putting putting it out. It just might not look the way you think it was going it was going to look. I honestly, honestly, honestly thought coming out of DC, the way to do a creator own book was I'm gonna need to write on a TV show to gain a certain amount of traction, <laughs> to, you know, to get a certain paycheck. And then after I do four sure. or five years there, I will have enough financial security to put out a book and I would, and then, you know, and then after those five years, maybe that book will do well and maybe it won't and I'll sort of do all that. But, you know, but it took like not having any of that. That's just like, you know, I'm just going to put out this book and it might like, I, honestly, like I thought Infidel was going to be the only comic I did because there was a world where it came out and didn't make any money and I didn't make any of my investment back. And that was all I could afford, you know? Sure. And but it put me in a position where I was just gonna be like, yeah, I'm just gonna put this book out, and it might be my last comic, but at least I get to say, I, I at least I'll never regret not telling the story. And and it did well enough that it opened up more opportunities for me to tell other stories. But like you know, it was not you know I it, it, I had no idea that that was an option until I did it. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I literally two days ago was having this conversation with my girlfriend. Like mm-hmm. I, I spent six months of the pandemic unemployed mm-hmm. and like freaking out about yeah. like career opportunities. And it was right at a time where I was getting ready to, you know, in, in the TV world that I was working in, there were going to be some opportunities opening up. Yeah. And I was, you know, going to jump into more of like a, you know, position in, in a writer's office on a show or whatever, like, and then everything sort of crumbled pandemic, all of this stuff. And it was like, Oh, my God, what's going to happen? Should I just like try and get another job that's like the last job I had and like, you know, stay in sort of the same lane for another year and hope that things are better and that I can do it then like, and then six months go by and like, you know, I'm not working and like for so, like nothing's really happening. And then finally, after those six months, I had like get an opportunity to jump into animation, which is something I had always really wanted to work in and like, yeah. you know, experience that. And then immediately after taking that job, I have 10 other job offers for the exact job that I was doing before yeah. that I certainly would have taken if they had come even even a week sooner, right. I would have taken those jobs, right? Like, and I think about that so and, much, like how thankful I am. Yeah, yeah it, it's so funny. Like, and I, I'm constantly trying to, I'm constantly, like, because I'm constantly trying to figure out how to frame it like pragmatically or scientifically, because I feel like when you say it, it just sounds like you're saying like, trust the universe, man. And that's like not useful like <laughs> advice to like anybody, you know? Sure. But like the only thing I can figure is that is in entertainment and sort storytelling, it is such an industry of the emperor's new clothes where mm-hmm. no one the, the the target is constantly moving. So as a result, like to your point or to your point earlier, you know, the people who say it's the people who say, I don't know. And the people who say, like, I don't know if I can hit that, I don't know what that is, who tend to be the most successful because they acknowledge the fact right. that the, the target is always moving. But because yep. the target is always moving, there's always and there's always a desperate opening for people who know what they're doing. And the problem is right. that the people in power don't know enough because the target is always moving. <laughs> they don't know enough to how to find those people and so, so yeah. do that. And so as a result, it, it, if you are honest with yourself, if you just keep working at your craft, you know, the honest yourself, you keep working at your craft, eventually 
by sheer laws of statistics, that window will fall on you. And then it's yeah. kind of up to you that hopefully you've done enough of the work for yourself yep. that you that you can make the most out of the opportunity. Like the people I have the most like sympathy for in the world actually are like actors who are successful very young because mm, yeah. they, you know, they they aren't they haven't lived long enough to like have the tools to sort of you know work to make the most of their moment they get success early so they think that's what the, the industry is and then it yeah. moves past them and they've realized they haven't they didn't take that time to learn enough to prepare themselves to how to get back into that window you yeah. know like uh like the the writer joe henderson uh, who, who's a showrunner on Lucifer. He did a comic called Skyward. Mm-hmm. He's got a new book come, uh, called Shakecraft. He's got this great story about how like the best advice he gives to writers is uh, is something no one wants to hear, but it's the fact that like the best time in your career is actually that time when you're not getting work. Because that time yeah. when you're not getting work is a time where you can just keep writing and producing. And so he tells a lot the story, his story, which is he got a job. His first writing job was on the show White Collar, and he mm-hmm. actually, like, in the room, pitched that he was a. He knew his competition for the job was a friend of his, and so because he was partly because he didn't want his friend to lose work and he didn't want to lose work, he pitched himself in the room as a writing team with that guy. They'd never written wow. together before, and so after that <laughs> meeting, he called him up and is just like, "Listen, I think I have a way for both of us to get that job, but we have to say we're a writing team. Do you want to write with me?" He's like, and the other guy Incredible. was like, "Do we got a job? Then yeah." for it and in the course of that in the first season of white collar every other writer writer on that show lost their job except joe and that other writer and on the one hand it's an easy way to think of that as luck but one of the things joe will say is like it wasn't luck because all that time that i spent freaking out and i didn't get jobs i was writing and so i had like 12 specs and in one of those 12 specs was a spec that was exactly like white collar so as a result i knew how to write that show before i got the job to write that show and and, and so for him, it was like that time where he wasn't working gave him the material to be prepared that when he actually got the chance, he was well-armed to kind right. of do everything he needs to do. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who actually get successful very quickly and who don't have yeah. that preparation because I think it's the hardest thing in the world to get it back, you know, when you had – because that's the other thing. Like it – a lot of times when this stuff hits us, it's, uh, you know, as much as we want to talk about like the secret and the manifesting all that sort of stuff, we don't have control over when this stuff hits us. And a lot yeah. of it is just making the most of the moment when it happens. And and part of making the moment is one, doing the preparation on yourself and on your abilities so that you can you can make the most of, of that moment. And, and two, having the wherewithal and the maturity to to do that while you're in it too. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's totally it's that thing of like, you know, luck is when preparation meets yeah. um uh what is it? Preparation meets opportunity or whatever. Yes. Uh and I think that that is so much like and it's a thing that I I never remember when I'm in crisis, but I always think about once I'm through it, right? Which is like you just you have to just keep working, keep working on the things that you can control, right? Yeah. And it's a thing they talk about in in sobriety a lot. Uh, you know, yeah. like focus on the things you can control and like let go of the things that you can't right and just completely be the captain of your ship and know that like at some point right that that you will have the opportunity to sort of seize on to you know whatever that 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 is whatever that wave is that you can write or whatever yeah. like to to mix the metaphors or anything but uh uh and that as long as you're prepared for it then that opportunity will come for you those doors will 
open. You just have to make sure that you are ready for them to open. Yeah. I, I remember when I was working for, so part of the job working at DC TV mm-hmm. was I was sort of like number two to Jeff Johns on the TV side. And so, right. but when I first started that job, Jeff didn't know me. Jeff, uh, mm-hmm. I got the job because I, I was a vertigo guy and, and, and Jeff is a DC guy, knew all the sort of DC people, but he didn't really know me. And it was very early into right. our sort of relationship. Near and so, vertigo guy. Yeah. And so I remember sitting in my office and I being terrified, like I'm going to lose my job because I don't do anything like all day. I don't <laughs> do. And, and it, it, we were still, we were still very new. We we're trying to figure out how it works, but there was like a month or two where I was just like, I'm not doing a thing. Like I right. better got to figure out because I'm going to apparently go back to New York and da, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And then what happened was we got a pitch in for something and Jeff came into my office and was kind of like, Hey, you want to get lunch and talk about this pitch? And we talked about this pitch and me and Jeff realized and it was the first time we actually got a chance to like put our heads together creatively on something. And we realized we right. really like working together. And and he and, and at the end of that conversation, he was like, God, I feel I really feel like I missed out not developing a, a book at Vertigo with you. And I was like, I feel like I missed out not working with you as a writer. And after that lunch, for the next mm-hmm. Four years I was there, I would never have a free moment in the office. I was constantly wow. running. And it was very much the thing I was saying. It was just like the target is constantly moving. And so they know they need people to do it, but they don't know what the skill set is and they don't know who they have that skill set. So the second they find someone who knows what they're doing, they're just going to throw it. They're going to throw it in that to, to fill that hole until they need someone else. And that's what it was, was for me. Like I was in on so many meetings, so many conversations and all that stuff because I, you know, I became a person like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. I know story. Right. I have, I can help somehow. And, and it was just the fact that like, he didn't know me well enough and I didn't know that. And we didn't know the job well enough to know what right. were, what was required to fill it. And so once I, it came out that like, Oh, I have skills that can actually be useful for this. Well, fuck it. I'm putting you in everything because who knows? <laughs> cause I, cause I don't know who else to sort of put in because I, I, you know, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah. Totally. Oh my God. Yeah, man. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, yeah, this is, this is uh golden and you porn sack, you've been so generous with your time. So as we wrap up, uh, uh, let's talk really quick about the good Asian, yes. uh, uh, where, what should people do? What's the action items? Um, and obviously really quick, I do want to mention your incredible artist, Alexander Tefenki, who we have talked oh about God. on the show before because he, uh, illustrated the book outpost zero. And we talked to Sean Kelly McKeever. Oh yeah. This guy is a revelation, and I've been waiting to see what the next big project he was going to do was. So I was stoked to see that he's the artist on this book. He's so good. He's so good. Also, he's like the nicest guy in the world. I really? mean, like if if this book, you know, if this book has as if this book does nothing else, I think one of the great things this book has done is kind of brought Alex into my life. He's such sure. a wonderful human being. Um, he he's an optimist to sort of to balance a lot of my cynicism and, and, and pessimism, <laughs> but he's just got, you know, he's just, I mean, he is, I, I, I hesitate to say this because I feel like it's just going to encourage editors to steal him from me, but <laughs> he is like super professional. You never need to check up on him deadlines. The work looks magnificent. Oh. He's yeah. honest upfront. I mean, like he did the first, like, okay. So the first issue of this book, was drawn over six months, which when you think about it, it's like, oh my God, that's a long amount of time. But it was six sure. months during COVID. And the man lived yep. in three different countries. He, <sighs> he's pretty sure he got COVID during that. Him and his family got COVID oh during that time gosh. because when they were living in France, they were living in a one-bedroom one bedroom apartment. You know, and, and, and he – so – and he still managed to finish 32 pages of 
a new book because like first issues always hey. take more time you know oh yeah so you're, like you're creating a world yeah and 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 it's reference and all this kind of stuff and so like and he is able to do this with never a complaint uh you know he and the, the, the other great thing is like now he just had an uh he just had a baby so less so like right now but like through the course of this we've been doing like these regular checkups and calls and it's been really great to just like have his other perspective sort of in my life and no it's just mm-hmm. like such a wonderful like a kind and generous professional like and, and super talented on top of it you know yeah. so um i just feel so 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 lucky man yeah i i'm the pages that uh, that have been shown so far look incredible and he truly is like a, an amazing amazing artist yeah. uh, that that people really i think is are are going to continuously um you know g- g- come come to realizing or come to discovering and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing uh, just how how high he reaches um but so is is a good agent up for for pre-order right yes. now yes good agents up for pre-orders right now i encourage everyone to pre-order it uh go go to talk to their stores either online or talk to their stores about ordering it that's still the best way to guarantee a copy of an image book um you know, pandemic times are weird times. And so as yeah. a result, these uh, these things have a tendency to sell out very quickly um, sure. because, you know, shops no are... No one wants to overorder. Yeah, no one wants to overorder. Even though I do believe there's free returnability uh, for uh, images offering free returnability on, on at least That's the first fair. issue. I don't know beyond that. But, there you um, go, retailers. Free returnability. No free reason not to uh, get a few extra issues in there. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, but, um, but I encourage everyone to, pre- to pre-order it through their, through their comic, yeah. in the comic shops. And it comes out May 5th. And I do want to mention also, it's colored by Lee Lowridge, who is one of the best colorists in the industry that oh, has like, trained every top colorist. Yes. Uh, in no, totally. Yeah, 100%. I was, the thing I was going to say about, about Alice's art is that like, as great as Alice's is, like, Lee really found a way. Like, it's, it can be so tough you know, coloring mm-hmm. artists where things are just complete on the page. And yeah. Lee has totally found a way, n- not just to take what else has done, but add a sense of like mood and ambiance to yep. it as, as well. Like he's, he's just so good at what he does. Yeah. These palettes are like excellent that I'm looking at and the design as well. The design is, is absolutely incredible. Yeah. By, by yeah. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff is a great, we work, we met, uh, worked together and met on Infidel and I, I, you know, he, he's now very much in regard (laughs) in in demand (laughs) and other places. So I'm like desperately trying to like hold on to him because his, his stuff is so, (laughs) we have a similar sensibility where, um, his stuff can be very clean and minimal. And so it's not, you know, it's, it's everything that's there is there to add like some ambiance or, or that sort of helps some storytelling. And, and I've told this every book every issue i feel like he will do a, a sound effect he will create a sound effect that looks so good on the page i will change the way i write just wow. so i can kind of like em, like put a little bit more of a spotlight on that sound effect because i love it so much yeah that's i love that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> um well so uh, let let people know where they can uh, find you online where's oh. where's the plugs where can they look out for your your thoughts words announcements whatever okay so twitter i'm at real underscore porn sack uh <laughs> instagram i'm at real underscore psac because i found out that you can't put porn in your name on Whoa. instagram yeah i was doing every different version of my name and it was like it's unavailable i'm wow. like how many porn sack pizza jokes are there on instagram i don't get this Truly. and then and then I tried it out and I got a friend to confirm it. 
that I guess unless you're like Pornhub, because I think they're the only like thing on like yeah, Instagram. I was about to say, there has to be like a yeah. big porn site that probably has a social media presence. There. But I think they're the only one. And that outside of that, you can't have porn in your Instagram name. So wow. I am real underscore PSAC on Instagram. Interesting. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, the 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 last question that we sure, ask sure. everyone who comes on the show, Porn Sack, is is uh, why do you love comics? Oh God. Ah, uh, let me count the ways. Um, honestly, <laughs> it is. I I mean, it's so. I don't. It's so hard to encapsulate. Um, you know, one, it is the kind of the bleeding edge of of culture. It's where people are taking the most most risks. That's one. Two, um, the people i found in my experience the people and the professionals who are drawn to it are just like wonderfully lovely wonderfully lovely people um mm-hmm. you know I, I i'm constantly amazed by how supportive everyone is of one another uh maybe it's like this in other industries and i just like haven't dived deep enough in those but like it just feels like comics is such a, a supportive sort of ecosystem right. um you know and like you get to like look at the work of artists, which are kind of amazing. I also feel like too, you know, while certainly it breaks down by generation, it does sort of feel like if you're into comics, you know, it's certainly specific genre of comics, but like it does, it, it's kind of amazing how comics readers, like this is the first time we've ever spoken, but like, you know, but we already have a shared vocabulary. I can tell over like so many books we, I think we both <laughs> love and right. like comics that we've read and things that we've like paid attention to. So I, you know, it, it's fascinating that something as broad as genre works almost like a subgenre in some ways because it brings people of like taste together. Wow. Yeah, totally. That's an amazing answer, Porn Sack. And uh, <laughs> I just thank you. Thank you so very much for joining the show. It's no, been a pleasure. thank you. It's been, it's been really fun. This has actually been my, first interview to talk about the book so this has been really educational for me it's like oh i gotta get a lot better at this (laughs) (laughs) no it's wonderful thanks so much (laughs) thank you and thank you once more to porn sack for joining the show you can follow him on twitter at real underscore porn sack and on instagram at real underscore PSAC. Thanks again to Sean Rosner for the music that you hear at the beginning and the interstitials and at the end. Uh, please follow Sean Rosner on Instagram at Sean the Rosner for more of his amazing stuff. Uh, thank you to Garm for sponsoring the show. Go to garmcompany.com slash TMBC to get your nice little 20% off discount. And thanks once more, as always, to all of you for listening. I, again, as I alluded to in the beginning of the show, there are some incredible guests, and I know you're all going to love listening to them. Um, so so make sure you, you know, subscribe if you haven't already. You know, make sure you're getting those notifications, because I know that you are going to want to hear uh, what, what all these amazing guests have to say, these writers and artists who are going to be joining the show in the coming weeks and months. Um, Again, you can follow me at Jason Halftones on Twitter and Instagram and the show at TMBC Workshop on the same places. And if you like the show, leave those ratings and reviews on those podcast apps. Uh, it's really, really helpful. But look, this is, we're all tired. It's, it's, you know, it's late or it's early or it's the middle of the afternoon. But, you know, everyone's kind of baseline tired these days. So I'm not going to take any more of your time here. But thanks once more for listening. And, uh, I don't know, take a nap and then make some freaking comics.
thatmightbecool.com. You never know. <laughs>